Matthew chapter 5 and Deuteronomy chapter 24 is where we will be today. In the series we're calling Hashtag Truth, we've been talking about hashtags. And, and maybe that was a new term to you when we started out. It's something that's arisen in this age of social media. Uh, a hashtag is it is a word or a couple of phrases that catches on and becomes popular largely because it is memorable and gets repeated often. And we're using that idea of a hashtag to kind of stand in the place or be a name of the human tendency to take sometimes complex truths and boil them down to memorable sayings that we can latch on to and remember. Uh, if you're not familiar with hashtag, though, you might not be familiar with this next term I'd like to introduce you to this morning, although it's not all that important. It, it does kind of apply in this situation. In this day and age of social media, there's not just hashtags. There's also what they call clickbait. I don't know if you're on Facebook or not. That is where I encounter this the most. Uh, clickbait is a headline designed to grab your attention to suck you in and a lot of times to trick you into reading or clicking on a link to an article and, and, and reading what most of the time isn't a whole lot worth anything just so that they can collect ad revenue on you visiting their websites. In fact, just this morning before service, I logged onto my Facebook account and looked through my timeline and, and in today's timeline there were t headlines like this, 30 hilarious signs that will totally get your attention. And the idea is they can lure you in to what, what are those signs and what do they say and click on it and follow that link. Uh, another one from today's headlines, uh, Mel Gibson's hidden agenda finally made public and Hollywood will lose its mind. And you want to, you want to know what's going to make Hollywood lose your mind. So you click on it and you look at, but a lot of times if you follow those links, You'll discover those headlines are, are disingenuous at best and downright dishonest at worst. A lot of times you'll click on those headlines and you'll go to that page and you'll discover that the article doesn't actually say anything at all like what the headline claims. There are hashtags and then there's clickbait. So far in the Sermon on the Mount that we've been studying together in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus has been talking about hashtag truths. He's been addressing our tendency to boil truth down to, to memorable catchphrases. And he's been warning us that that tendency to boil things down to something catchy many times just paints a partial picture of reality. One of the word pictures I've been trying to use to illustrate this is we end up not so much with a portrait, but a caricature. You know, a caricature when you go to the uh, carnival or the, the fair and, and somebody says, I'll draw a picture of you in five minutes. And what you get isn't a real, real realistic depiction, but it is recognizable as you. It highlights certain features, exaggerates them but leaves other features out altogether. The law is the outflow of the character of God. If the law reveals to us who God is and what God is like, at least insofar as it can be revealed by the law, if that's the purpose of the law, when we boil down the law to hashtags, we end up with a caricature of God. 
emphasizing certain characteristics and leaving out others entirely. And Jesus comes in the Sermon on the Mount and he says, I want to fulfill the law and the prophets. I want to take your caricature and start filling in some of those missing details. So far, Jesus has talked about two of the best known commandments in the Ten Commandments. Thou shall not murder and thou shall not commit adultery. He's talked about how boiling morality down to just those rules misses out on the full teaching of what God wants us to reflect of His character. Character. I'll eventually get that word out. Today, however, Jesus moves beyond the Ten Commandments. And at stake today is, is this. If our understanding of the character of God, if our understanding of the character of God is distorted by hashtag truths, if our understanding of the character of God is, is thrown off by boiling things down to memorable phrases, how much more is our understanding of Him distorted when the hashtag gets the truth wrong? What happens when the hashtag is, is more clickbait than it is hashtag? That's the case, I would argue, in this week's teaching on divorce. To understand where Jesus is coming from, we have to understand a little bit about the world and the the, the religious system and the philosophy in which Jesus lived. I'm not fully certain how long divorce has been around in human history. I suspect it's probably been around almost as long as marriage ha has. I do know that in the oldest known existing law code surviving today, when I was growing up they talked about the code of Hammurabi, there's some even older than that. Well, the oldest that we know of is the code of Ur-Namu was written in Mesopotamia right about the time God was saying to Abraham, leave your country and your people and go to the land I'm about to show you. As that was happening in Mesopotamia, there was a, a, a ruler who was codifying, making a code of his rulings in different cases. And in that very first known instance of, of recorded law in human history, there are provisions included for divorce. Needless to say, divorce is not a modern invention. Not only is it there in the code of Ur-Namu, it is also in the Torah. The Torah, the, the law, we tend to call them the books of Moses. First five books in the Old Testament. The law that God gave to Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. In the Torah, in the law, there is some instructions about divorce. Now, I do need to point out there's not a whole lot about divorce in the Torah. In fact, there are just four verses. So short, we can read them in, a, in their entirety today. If you have your Bibles open to Deuteronomy chapter 24, that's where the law's teaching on divorce is found. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, is everything that Moses has to say on the subject of divorce. Starting at verse 1, it says, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, 
And he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. And, talk about a run-on sentence, and if, after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then... Then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her, marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving to you as an inheritance. That is what the Torah of Moses has to say about divorce. Not a whole lot there. Of course, over time, as that law was applied in different situations, that law was interpreted by rabbis and sages throughout Judaism. Eventually, an entire system of rulings developed, an entire system of interpretations developed, devoted to the subject of divorce. And so it is in the Mishnah. If you're not familiar with the Mishnah, the Mishnah is not Scripture. Rather, the Mishnah is a series, a set of commentaries on the law, documenting the various rulings of various rabbis on different points of Jewish law. There are several different books included in the Mishnah, and those books sometimes are made up of several books, kind of like our Bible. One of them in particular, devoted to the subject of the family and the household, has a tractate, an entire book in it, devoted to the subject of divorce. It's called the Mishnah Gittin. Gittin in Hebrew roughly means documents. And while that Mishnah relates to a few different documents, most of it has to do with the one Moses mentions in Deuteronomy 24, the certificate of divorce. From four verses in the Torah to nine chapters about divorce in the Mishnah. Now in the Mishnah, and in Judaism as a whole, originally, originally adultery was not considered grounds for divorce. Say, so hold on a second. How can that be? Adultery not grounds for divorce? Well, let's remember what adultery is. We talked about that last week. Strictly defined, the word itself refers to sleeping, sexual intercourse, with the wife of another man. It involves a married woman sleeping, having sexual intercourse with someone who is not her husband. And adultery, defined in that way, under the Torah, was punishable not by divorce, but by death. The penalty for adultery was death by stoning. And so it was that if your wife committed adultery, your marriage would end not by handing her a certificate of divorce, but it would end with her death when she was executed for that crime. Now that's what the Torah says. And while those provisions are there in the Torah, that sentence in Judaism was not very often carried out. It was understood by, by the Jews over time that that was that was a possible punishment, but it was not required. 
And so more often than not, when adultery happened, a wife was divorced when, when, as Deuteronomy 24 says, when a husband discovered something indecent about her, when he discovered her adultery, he would draw up a bill or a certificate of divorce and give it to her. And the Mishnah Gittim, this, this book about documents, has nine chapters, well, eight chapters devoted to the certificate of divorce and all the regulations, all the rules about making sure that certificate was just right. There are all sorts of rules there. There are rules about when that certificate could be written and, and when it could be signed. You could write, you could write the certificate in the day and sign it that same day. That would be fine. If you wanted, you could write the certificate of divorce at night and sign it at night. That's fine. You can even write the certificate of divorce at night and sign it that next day. That's fine. But don't you dare write the certificate in the day and sign it at night. Then it's invalid. I don't know. That's the rule. There, there are rules about what it could be written on. Here, it, it can be written on just about anything. In fact, the Mishnah specifically states, if you want, you can write it on an olive leaf. You can, according specifically in the Mishnah. You can, if you want, write it on the horn of a cow. As long as you give the cow and not just the horn to your wife when you divorce her. About the only thing you can't write it on is a bacon cheeseburger. Okay, I'm making that part up. It doesn't say bacon cheese. You can't write it on any food. So says the Mishnah. One of my favorite rules in there it says that the certificate of divorce has to be written with a, with a specific, with a particular woman in mind. Quoting from an English translation here, there's actually this ruling there. It says, if one is passing through the marketplace and hears the voice of the scribes. Remember, this is why it matters when it's written and signed. Most people, when the Mishnah was written, most people couldn't write. So you had to go and hire someone to write your certificate of divorce for you. So it says, if you're passing through the marketplace and you hear the voice of the scribe saying, so-and-so divorces so-and-so from such-and-such -such a place, and he says to himself, well, that's my name, and that's my wife's name, it's invalid to divorce her with that certificate of divorce. You couldn't steal that guy's certificate and take it home and use it with your wife. That's not allowed. Very, very specific rulings. Almost so much so that at times it, it almost seems humorous. Yet obviously at some point in Jewish history, someone raised that question and received a ruling. In all eight of those chapters, however, eight chapters about divorce, the question about legitimate grounds for divorce is never raised until the very last verse, consisting of three sentences. Nine chapters about olive leaves and bacon cheeseburgers. Three verses, or three sentences, one verse, about when you're actually allowed to divorce your wife. It says, Beit Shammai, or the house of Shammai says, no man shall divorce his wife, and unless he found in her unchaste behavior, as it stated in Deuteronomy, because he found in her ervat devar, unchaste behavior. Beit Hillel, the house of Hillel, another 
school taught by the rabbi Hillel. House Hillel says, even if she spoils his food, because it is said, Ervat Devar, he can divorce her. And yet another rabbi, Rabbi Akiva, says, even if he found another woman prettier than her, as it is stated, he is displeased with her. If it happened that he does not find, she does not find favor in his eyes. When can you get a divorce? One rabbi and his disciples say only in the case of unchaste behavior, what we might call sexual immorality. Another rabbi says, for any reason whatsoever, even because she burnt the meatloaf. And still another, you can even divorce your wife if you find somebody prettier and decide you want to marry her instead. Is it any wonder that in Matthew chapter 19, they come up to Jesus with some questions about when is it legitimate to give your wife a certificate of divorce? The rulings on divorce are all about procedure. When it comes to when it's appropriate, almost nothing is said, and what is said contradicts itself. Suppose you might say, why are we talking about this in hashtag truth? Isn't that the opposite of hashtag truth? Going from four verses to nine chapters. That's hardly boiling it down. But in Jesus' day, the common understanding of divorce really was a hashtag truth. It really was. All of that was really boiled down to one saying that Jesus quotes in Matthew chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, look there. Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 31. It has been said, Jesus says, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. And if your Bible is one with footnotes, you'll notice down there, there's a little E, and then you look down at the bottom, it tells you that here Jesus is referencing that law from Deuteronomy 24 we just read. If it has been said, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus says, you've taken the truth of God's law and you've boiled it down to a hashtag. You've taken what God says about marriage and what God says about divorce, and you've made it all hinge on procedural technicalities. You seem to be operating under the assumption that as long as you follow the right procedure, it doesn't matter the reason why, as long as you follow the right procedure, everything is just fine. And that really was a fair assessment of the common mentality in Jesus' day. Those three verses, the great debate between Hillel and Shammai. Shammai, you can only divorce your wife if she is found guilty of unchaste behavior. And Hillel, you can, you can divorce your wife for any and, any and every reason. That great debate had been mostly settled in the common mindset. And, and Beit Hillel won out. In Jesus' day, most people assume that it doesn't matter why, as long as you do it right, you're allowed to divorce your wife for any reason. 
A husband was allowed to send his wife away. Provided he followed proper procedure, he was allowed to divorce his wife and there was no stigma attached to the act. To the point that about the same time as Jesus, a little bit after the historian Josephus, telling his own biography, simply states, I was displeased with my wife because of her pleasure, so I sent her back home and married another, as if it was no big deal. And as I spoke about with our kids, marriage matters to God. Marriage matters to God because marriage paints a picture of God's character and God's love for us. And this caricature of divorce in the law distorts our understanding of who God is. So Jesus steps in to correct it. Notice first, that Jesus narrows, that Jesus severely limits the grounds for divorce. Speaking to a world where any and every reason is acceptable for a husband to divorce a wife, it's impossible for a wife to divorce a husband, but in a world in that day, in that day, in a world where a husband could divorce his wife for any and every reason, Jesus says, no, no, not any and every reason. Except for the case, the NIV here says sexual immorality. If you have one of the Pew Bibles or one of the older NIVs, the 1984 NIV says marital unfaithfulness. The King James Version says fornication. The word there is fairly specific, and, and I believe that sexual immorality is probably the best of those three choices. The word itself is the Greek word porneia. And porneia is more than just adultery. It's more than just adultery, sleeping with someone when you're married. It's more than that. But it's also less than any sort of marital unfaithfulness. It refers specifically to sexual sin. The range of morality for that word porneia it includes not just adultery, but any premarital or extramarital sexual intercourse. Included in that was same-sex intercourse and incest as well. All of those things were included in that concept of porneia. So sexual immorality probably is a good translation here. And in every reason, the world says, Jesus says, only, only sexual immorality. There is another teaching from Jesus about legitimate grounds for divorce. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You might be thinking, hold on a second, 1 Corinthians, that was written by Paul, not written by Jesus. But if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the teaching in particular I'm talking about, Paul specifies this command comes not from me. This is not a word from me, Paul says. This word is from the Lord. Paul emphasizes that this is what Jesus himself taught. And Paul says that desertion, when an unbelieving spouse no longer wishes to be around a believing spouse and, and wants to leave the home, desertion along with sexual immorality is ground for divorce. Not any and every reason, 
very few. And if Jesus had stopped his teaching right there, it would not have been all that radical. Because he would just be siding with Beit Shammai in the debates. Not any and every reason, but unchaste behavior only. Where Jesus takes it a step farther is in what comes next. I want you to notice that, that even as Jesus radically narrows the grounds for divorce, he broadens significantly the concept of adultery. Verse 32, which I I just read a while ago, has proven fairly difficult to translate. And you can see that. You can see that in, in some of the different translations. The one I read, verse 32, says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, except for porneia, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. If you read it in one of the older NIVs, in 1984 NIV, it says anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. If you're reading in the King James Version, it says anyone who divorces his wife, paraphrasing there, except for sexual immorality or fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. That phrase, causes her to commit adultery, is one that creates some questions and problems. It's a theological question raised most of all. The Bible as a whole is fairly clear that we are held morally responsible for the choices that we make. The decisions that we make are what we are held accountable for. The Bible is also fairly clear that we are not held guilty, we are not condemned for the sins that somebody else makes. We talked about this when we studied the book of Ezekiel together. Ezekiel, God through Ezekiel quotes a a proverb, uh, the father eats the sour grapes and the son's teeth are set on edge. It was a saying going around that we're being punished because of what other people did. And God says, oh no, you need to understand this. You're not being punished for somebody else's sins. The only sins I punish you for are your own. The Bible is fairly clear on that. We're not condemned for the choices somebody else makes. We also need to understand that in Jesus' day, divorce was a decision the husband made. Uh, Jewish law, Jewish interpretation on the law says a, a, a woman can be divorced with her consent or against her consent. Whether she wants to be divorced or not, the husband can just hand her a certificate of divorce, and as long as it's worded properly and witnessed properly, she's gone. But a husband can only be divorced with his own consent. A wife cannot hand her husband a certificate of divorce and leave him. The only way she can get divorced if she wants a divorce is is to either be so awful to live with or to bribe him so so much that he wants to divorce her. She has no say in the matter. In Jesus' day, it was the husband's choice. So how can Jesus possibly say that a decision that lies with the husband, a decision over which the wife really has no say, could make her an adulteress. Well, it doesn't really say that. 
one way I suppose you might translate that, but it doesn't say he makes her an adulteress. It says he causes her. The verb to cause, to make, is the same in the Greek. It, he causes her to do something. It's not a noun, it's a verb. And here is where it really gets difficult. Stay with me for a second. When we talk about grammar, in English or Greek, doesn't matter, verbs have different voices. There's the active voice and the passive voice. One is something I do. The other is something that is done to me. Take, for example, the verb to punch. I punched the wall. Active voice. I did it. The wall punched me. I don't know how that happens, but the wall punched me. I was punched. Passive voice. I was punched. Active, I do. Passive is done to me. And so, earlier in chapter 5, when Jesus quotes the command, you shall not commit adultery, he uses the active voice. Something that you do. You shall not commit adultery. Uh, then in the next teaching, when he talks about anyone who looks at a woman with an eye towards desire, talked about that last week. If you didn't hear it, you visit the website. You can hear it yourself. It's an awful sermon. Feel a lot better today. No medicine. I can actually think straight, but it's there. You can hear it. Uh, when he says anyone who looks at a woman with an eye towards desire, he commits adultery with her. Active voice, something he does. Yet in this verse, the voice changes to passive. And it's very difficult to translate that into English because adultery is a noun, not a verb. It's very hard to make passive nouns. Passive verbs are tough enough as it is. The closest I can come is to change commit adultery into something else that means less somehow, but kind of captures the... You could call adultery cheating on someone. Active voice, I cheat on someone. Passive voice, someone cheats on me. When Jesus says... Uh, when a woman divorces his wife, gives her a certificate of divorce for a reason other than sexual immorality, he passive voices, passive voice cheats on her. She is causes her to be cheated on. Now you begin to see why the NIV in 2011 translated this as it causes her to become the victim of adultery. The passive voice is not something that she does. It's something that is done to her. Now, just as soon as I get that all tied up into a nice pretty box, intellectual honesty requires me to tell you this next part. It's not quite that cut and dry, straightforward. Because there is, in the Greek language, a third voice. There is a middle voice. I punch the wall, that's something I do. I was punched, that was something that is done to me. I punch myself is probably a sign of significant mental instability. But that's middle voice. It's something I do to myself. In the Greek language, middle and passive are the exact same forms. Different meanings, but spelled the same way. 
So there's always the question, like here, where a verb can be active or passive, is it active or passive, or is it middle? And sometimes it is in the middle voice. For example, when it says anyone who divorces, or anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery, it's there in the middle voice. <clears throat> Say, then how do we know? Is this middle or passive? Is this something done to the woman, or is this something the woman does to herself? Context. Context is what gives us that clue. And in Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10 in a similar teaching, parallel to what Jesus says in Matthew 19, in Mark 10, Jesus specifically spells it out. Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit, translating Jesus' words, leaves no room for confusion. It says, if a man divorces his wife and remarries, he commits adultery against her. The adultery by a man who divorces his wife for illegitimate grounds is a wrong that is done in Mark chapter 10 against her. Still with me? This is a radical expansion to the understanding of adultery prevalent in Jesus' day. Remember in Jesus' day, Adultery is an offense against the husband's rights. A husband had a right to his wife. And when somebody, when somebody had intercourse with his wife, they violated his rights. In the world in which Jesus lived, you can commit adultery with a woman, but you cannot commit adultery against a woman. The woman in Jesus' day had no rights. But Jesus says, oh yes, you can. Oh yes, you can. Even if you follow the proper procedures, even if you give her the cow, if the divorce is not for legitimate grounds, your, your obligations, the obligations you made and the vows to your wife still stand. Even if you follow proper procedure. Absent legitimate grounds. When you go and marry someone else, you sin against your wife. Now for the last point. Kids, you listening? I talked a long time today. You listen? This is the important part right here. Last point. Whole reason I brought up the issue of clickbait. The hashtag, as accurate as it was about the understanding of divorce in Jesus' day, the hashtag gets the law wrong. If you still have your Bibles open, go back and look at Deuteronomy chapter 24 again. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you've heard that it was said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Look at Deuteronomy 24 and see what it actually says. It actually says, if. And that's a pretty important word. Two letters, but a pretty important word right there. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house. And if after she leaves his house and she becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again. 
they boiled that if, 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 they boiled that if down to a husband must give his wife a certificate of divorce. The commandment was not an instruction about how to go about getting a divorce at all. The law wasn't, if you want to get a divorce, this is how you go about it. The law was, if contrary to my design and plan for your life, it because of the choices you or someone else makes ruin my design and my plan for you, if you find yourself in a situation where a divorce has happened, this is what is or is not allowed to occur after it. It was not a command about how to get a divorce. It was a command about how to respond to a divorce that's already happened. In other words, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus says, God said this, Moses said this, because of the hardness of your hearts. In other words, the command about divorce was written for your protection. To protect you from your own bad choices and the bad choices of other people around you. This law was put in place to protect you from some of the consequences. Ready write this down, kids? Here's the principle. Protection does not imply permission. Those are big words. I wish I knew how to say that shorter. Sorry, Tessa. That's big words. Protection does not imply permission. Let me tell you what that means. Just because God says, I'm going to give you this law to spare you from some of the pain and heartbreak and, and absolute evil that comes with divorce, this is not God saying you're allowed to get a divorce for any and every reason. That's a lot like me saying, I'm going to go jump off the top of the church. Don't worry, I got my helmet on. Just because I'm protecting myself doesn't mean it's the right thing to do or the smart thing to do. Protection does not imply permission. Yet in turning this truth into a hashtag, that's what the people in Jesus' day had done. They'd taken this law about the consequences of divorce and turned it into a blueprint for how to divorce their wives. Now, after all of that, what in the world are we supposed to do about that? I'm out of time. Got to hurry here. I think there are three ways this teaching needs to be applied. First of all, this teaching needs to be applied by those of us who are unmarried. And for those of us who are unmarried, we need to bear in mind that God has a purpose and a plan for our marriage. God wants us to have a marriage that teaches us who He is like, what He is like, and how much He loves us. That's not to say that God intends all of us to be married. The Bible's clear that God calls some of us to singleness. But for the vast majority of us, God wants our marriage to teach us, to be a, a means of grace that shows us His heart. And if that's the case, those of us who are unmarried right now need to conduct ourselves with honor. And relate to other people with honor that guards the sanctity, the holiness of that marriage until the day it happens. Marriage matters to God.
to those of us who are married. This teaching reminds us that God intends our marriage to be for life. In the opening introductions in the charge to the couple in every marriage I've ever performed are the words I require and charge you both to remember that the, that the commitment to marriage is a commitment to permanence. It's God's will that your marriage be for life and that only death shall separate you. To those of us who are married, we need to hear Jesus' corrective because we live in a world where any and every reason goes. Jesus says only, only in the case where sexual immorality has already violated the vows of marriage or only in the case where desertion has violated the vow of your marriage, only in those instances are you loosed. Apart from those legitimate grounds, the commitment you made when you stood before God and these witnesses and said, I do, remains. We'd better be living our lives in ways that honor those vows. But what about God's word to those of us who are divorced? Even to those of us perhaps who have, who have gone through a divorce absent those legitimate grounds. In particular, what about those of us who have gone through a divorce absent those legitimate grounds and remarried? What's the truth for us here? Here I'd point you back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 again. And I try to apply a principle that Paul lays out in that chapter, not necessarily in regard to divorce, but I think the principle applies here. Paul says each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. In instances of divorce and remarriage, when we have remarried, the correct course of action, when we realize God's will for our life and commit ourselves to following His will for our life, the correct action, if we've divorced and remarried, is not to somehow divorce our second spouse and try to be reunited with the first. In fact, Deuteronomy says specifically that's not allowed at all. The correct course of action is to realize I have made promises. I have entered into vows. Whether I have the legitimate grounds to break my previous vows aside, I have now made vows to this spouse. I have made promises to this family. And for my sake and for their sake, I have a responsibility to keep those promises and be faithful to my spouse and my children. There's a word here for all of us. Conduct yourselves with honor. Keep your promises and reject the lie that says any and every reason. 